We come this Lord's Day to continue our study in the subject of the God of all comforts. And this morning we press on to discuss the comfort that we have in the Lord Jesus as our great high priest. But previously, we had said that God comforts His people primarily by forgiving our sins, cleansing us from all unrighteousness and reconciling us to Himself. Judgment is taken away and everlasting life is promised. One of the greatest metaphors God uses to comfort His people is that of the shepherd and his sheep. The metaphor refers to sheep being scattered, wandering away, and fleeing due to fear. These are pictures of the sins of the Lord's people that cause them to disobey Him and leave. But Christ is made like His people so that He could die in our place, judged by God for our sins laid upon Him. Because it is necessary that our Redeemer be made like the ones He will die to save, Isaiah points out this truth that in some way our Good Shepherd is made like His own sheep. Christ never sinned like His sheep do or went astray or turned to His own way. Rather, Isaiah lamented that our Shepherd, our Savior, our Substitute, died like a sheep. But in His humanity, our Lord Jesus is suited not only to die in our place, but also to intercede for us unto God. He is the God-man who is the ideal high priest for His people unto God. Job lamented during his great time of sorrow, confusion, and oppression that there was no intercessor between himself and God to act on his behalf, to appeal for him unto God. Job despaired over the infinite disparity between God's crushing power and Job's own weakness. Christ is that longed-for man in the middle between us and God. Only Jesus is qualified to intercede for us to God because only Jesus provides a perfect satisfaction in answer to all that God has against poor sinners. Christ's sacrifice at Calvary puts away forever the wrath of God for our sin. In Hebrews 2, Christ as God incarnate in human flesh is revealed both as the sacrifice to save His people from the power of death and as the perfect high priest to make reconciliation to God for us. Christ is identified as that promised seed of Abraham by which God promised to bless all the nations one day. Note the perfect efficiency of Christ as both the man sacrificed unto God take away our sins and as the intercessor, the priest, to present that sacrifice to God and to plead its efficacy and sufficiency unto God. Jesus in His humanity knows our weakness, our frailties, our temptations. He is at once the offering for our sin and the presenter of that offering unto God. Thereby He makes reconciliation for the sins of His people. Christ reconciles us to God. He takes away the dispute God had against us for our sin. Truly the old account was settled long ago by Jesus Christ. Because Christ both offered Himself as God's Lamb and presents as our high priest that offering to God, He is able to ensure to us that God is now satisfied with us for Jesus' sake. Indeed, this conjoining of Christ as offering and priest was foretold in Isaiah 53 
after Jesus was made the Lamb to die for the disobedient sheep, He was exalted to the heights of glory and honor by God on account of it. But Isaiah concludes that Christ's honor and reign are not only due to His offering for sin, which justifies us. No, Christ is also exalted because He makes intercession for the transgressors. Christ's work isn't done without interceding for His people. He presents and argues the perfection of His offering unto God on behalf of His sinful people, His lost sheep. Jesus is both the intercessor, the high priest presenting the offering to God, and He's Himself that offering for our sin. Who is more qualified to represent the sacrifice as a perfect and sufficient offering to God than His dear Son who made that offering to begin with? The Father saw the travail of Christ's soul at Calvary and was satisfied, Isaiah tells us, and therefore it justified His lost sheep. Christ then presses that satisfaction before God on our behalf as our intercessor, our advocate, our great high priest. Christ already had begun His intercession the night He was betrayed when He prayed for Peter that His faith wouldn't fail when the devil attacked him and caused him to stumble. One final observation at the cross, Jesus offered Himself like a lamb led to the slaughter in silence. He died like a quiet, docile lamb for us. But now Jesus speaks strongly for us. He intercedes for us. He pleads His own body and blood on our behalf. Now, Christ had to be made like His brethren, Hebrews 2 verse 17 says, that He might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of His people. We covered the substance of that verse last Lord's Day. God created the office of priests to represent the people to God and to represent God to the people. Christ was anointed such a priest in olden times. We find it recorded in Psalm 110, which we read earlier this morning. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord will send the rod of thy strength out of Zion, Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people will be willing in the day of thy power in the beauties of the holiness. From the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. Now these first three verses focus on the exaltation of Christ as the ruler of all the world. The one to whom all things will in due course be subjected when God the Father makes Christ's enemies His very footstool, and when He sends the rod of the strength of Christ out of Zion, and when He ordains that He should rule in the midst of His enemies, and that His people will be willing when Christ comes into His power, and the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, thou hast to do of thy youth. So this is a reference to a promise of a strong Savior, a strong King, a strong ruler from the hand of God at the anointing of God to come and rule 
over the world to destroy the wicked and to with great joy lead His people unto their promised estate. Then look at verse 4. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of His wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall He lift up the head. Now this is talking about a galloping, romping, running battle which the Lord Jesus wins at every turn and which brings about the subjugation of the wicked under His control. But there right in the middle is this promise, this oath by the Father towards Christ, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And if you remember, Melchizedek was that mysterious priest who was also a king He was the King of Righteousness, if you remember. And he was a priest to the Most High God. And Abraham and his friends ran into this priest Melchizedek. And if you recall, the priest Melchizedek came out to see Abraham and his people. And Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. We read in later chapters in Hebrews. And Melchizedek gave to Abraham and to his coterie bread and wine, which of course reminds us of the Lord Jesus giving to His people the bread and wine of the Lord's table to signify the body and blood that He would offer. And even this Lord's day, the Lord Jesus gives to us bread and wine, doesn't He? The symbols of His body and His blood through which and by which All of our hope and life and glory depend. They are the very bread of life upon which we spiritually feed that we might have life abundant and everlasting. So, in this Old Testament passage, the high priesthood of the Lord Jesus, not after the line of Aaron, rather after the manner of Melchizedek, is ordained and given to the Lord Jesus to be a priest. Old Brother Gill describes Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 and explains more of what it means that Christ should be made like His brethren that He might be a merciful and faithful high priest to reconcile His people unto God. The adopted sons of God even those who were brethren before Christ's incarnation, being from all eternity predestinated to the adoption of children. Christ's incarnation was in time and after many of the brethren already existed. And it was only for their sakes that He assumed human nature. And therefore it was proper He should be like them in that nature in all things, in all the essentials of it. So these are the sons which Christ is to lead to glory. It was necessary, Hebrews says earlier, that the captain of their salvation should be perfected by suffering. It was not necessary that He should have our humanity, our nature, by natural generation, that is, through Adam, and in all the properties and affections of it that are not sinful. For it did not behoove Him to be like them in sin or in sickness 
or in diseases of the body, but rather in all temptations, though in some things His differ from theirs, none of His temptations arose from within Himself, and those from without could make no impression on Him. And in sufferings, that there might be a conformity between the head and the members. So Gil is describing in more detail what it meant for Christ to be made like unto His brethren, the adopted sons of God, that He took on our humanity. He took on Himself the nature of mankind, not through natural generation, but rather by the Holy Ghost and in Mary, that He took on Himself all of our properties and affections, that is, feelings and desires and so forth, that are not sinful. For it wouldn't behoove Him to be made like them in sin or in sickness or in diseases of the body. And He took on Himself our infirmities and temptations, although there is some difference that Mr. Gill points out. Though there is in some things a difference, His sufferings were by way of punishment, that is, punishment in our place, and were attended with wrath, and were meritorious, which cannot be said of the children, the adopted children. Think about what that means, that our sufferings are not by way of eternal punishment at all, we who've trusted in Jesus. Our sufferings are not attended with wrath, The wrath has been borne by Christ in our stead. Our sufferings are not meritorious as Christ's were. So that you see that the identity which Christ has with the children, the adopted children who would be redeemed, in some ways are similar. In other ways, they're identical. In other ways, they are opposites. Interesting. Is it not? And it doesn't say that He shared the humanity of the wicked who are not the sons to be saved, but rather the humanity of His people whom He would redeem. So it cannot be said that our sufferings are by way of punishment, eternal, or attended with God's wrath, or even were meritorious, That can't be said of ours. All that can be said of Christ's sufferings. But that He should have a human nature as to its essence and perfection, like to the sons who were being adopted, was necessary. It was proper. He should be truly and really man, as well as truly and really God. And all this, the writer of Hebrews says, so that He, Christ, might be a merciful and faithful high priest to God. Gill says, He could not be in high priest offer sacrifice for sin and make intercession unless He was man. Nor could He be a merciful and compassionate one, sympathize with His people in their sorrows, temptations and sufferings, unless He was like them in these. Nor would He be a faithful, that is a true and lawful high priest otherwise, because every high priest is taken from among men. Here it is nailed down that it was necessary for Christ to be made like His brethren in human flesh so that He could be a merciful and faithful high priest unto God, 
in things pertaining to God, in things in which God has to do with His people, as to preside in His name over them, to declare His will unto them, and bless them, and in the things in which the people have to do with God. That is, to offer to God a sacrifice for their sins, to present this sacrifice to God, to appear in God's presence for them, that is, for the sons He would redeem, to carry in their petitions and plead their cause as their advocate. Christ must be made like the sons whom He would redeem and lead to glory so that He might be a faithful high priest and a merciful high priest relating to the things pertaining to God in both directions, God to man and man to God. Finally, in order to make reconciliation for the sins of the people, of God's covenant people, the people He has chosen for Himself and given to His Son and whom Christ saves from their sins by making satisfaction for them to the law and justice of God, which is here meant by reconciliation. And in order to this, which could not be done without blood, without sufferings and death, it was proper he should be man and like unto his brethren. The writer of Hebrews goes on though, having nailed down those points, to say, for in that Christ our high priest has suffered being tempted, He is able to succor them that are tempted. So here, the work of the high priest is extended to this crucial point. That because He is incarnate in our flesh and a man as well as God, and because all of that suits Him to make an offering to die in the place of His people, and to present that offering as the high priest before God, and to represent us before God in all things. And only a man could do that. All priests are drawn from human flesh. Well, because of that, going further, because he suffered being tempted, he's able to succor them that are tempted, the writer of Hebrews says. Notice we move from Christ's perfection in representing us to God and reconciling poor sinners to God by His perfect sacrifice presented by Him to God for us, we move from that to His help to us when we are tempted. When we are tempted. Because Christ has suffered these things on our behalf and in our likeness, you see, He is able to help them, to support them, to encourage them of us that are tempted. And to this, Gil has more encouraging words. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted by Satan in his entrance to his public ministry and a little before his death. That was done not by stirring up sin in Christ, for he had none, not by putting any into him which could not be done, nor could Satan get any advantage over Christ. He solicited him one thing and another, but in vain. Though these temptations were very troublesome and disagreeable and abhorrent to the pure and holy nature of Christ, and so must be reckoned among His sufferings. 
And as afflictions are sometimes called temptations, in this sense also Christ suffered, being tempted with outward poverty and meanness. Meanness doesn't mean He was mean. It means that He was of low estate in His humanity during His ministry. With slight and neglect from His own relations and with a general contempt and reproach among men, He was often tempted by the Jews with ensnaring questions. He was deserted by His followers, by His own disciples, yea, by His God and Father, all which were great trials to Him and must be accounted as sufferings. And He also endured great pains of body and anguish of mind, and at last death itself. So this is the explanation for what it means. For in that He Himself had suffered being tempted. All of these bad things that came upon our Lord Jesus in His humanity and as our high priest, preparing Him to become our high priest because He has suffered being tempted, tempted by the devil, tempted by wicked men, tempted by misconduct of His own family, friends, and nation, tempted by the physical pain and suffering that He bore for us, at the cross. All of these things were temptations to Christ that He suffered in His body, in His humanity. And because of that, He is able to succor them that are tempted, to support, to encourage, to carry through His people who are also flesh and blood, just like Himself. He's able to succor us that are tempted. As all the saints more or less are both with Satan's temptations and with afflictions in the world which God suffers to befall them on various accounts, partly on His own account, that is on God's own account, to show His grace, power, and faithfulness in support under them and in delivering out of them, and partly on His Son's account, that they may be like unto Him and He may have an opportunity of succoring them and sympathizing with them, and also on their own account, to humble them, to try their faith, to excite them to prayer and watchfulness, to keep them dependent on the power and grace of God. And these Christ suckers, by having and showing a fellow feeling with them, by praying for them, by supporting them under temptations, by rebuking the tempter and delivering out of them, And all this He is able to do. He must be able to succor them as He is God. And His conquering Satan is a convincing evidence to the saints of His ability. But here it intends, here it is meant in this text, His qualification and fitness and readiness to help His people in such circumstances from the experience He Himself has had of these things. And here is a great irony and a great comfort to us that God knows all things, always has. He knows our weaknesses. You remember in Psalm 103, He knows that we are but grass. He knows that we are made of dust. He knows all the temptations. He knows all of our trials, all of our pains and sorrows. He knows all those things because He is God and He knows all things. Nevertheless, God determined it was necessary that His Son, who would lead many sons into glory, 
who would save His people from their sin. It was determined that it was necessary that He should know these things experimentally or by His own personal experience. It's one thing to say God knows all these things. It's another to say that our Lord Jesus knows them by personal sad experience. And therefore, He can sympathize with us as a man and not only as a God. And He knows these things because He endured them Himself. And this is why in His high priestly office He is qualified to support, to encourage, to sympathize with His people whom He has redeemed. Because we're going through things similar to those things which the Lord Jesus Himself went through. Now we must always remember the Lord Jesus as our comforting High Priest. We need to be always remembering the Lord Jesus as our comforting High Priest. And to remember His qualifications. Not just that He is God of very God, for He is, but that He is man of man. He is the man of sorrows. He is acquainted with grief. He was despised and we esteemed Him not. He went through all of these like sufferings and temptations in His humanity, in His flesh like we do, yet He never sinned. And as that high priest, we have to remember that He is a real man of ours in the glory of God. A real man of ours in the glory of God. Think of it. That always in the midst of the glory of God, since the incarnation of Christ, there is a man who is God, the second person of the Godhead, the Son of God, our Lord Jesus, always there, always there in the thick of it, if you will. Always there making intercession for us in His humanity, who knows personally our trouble and trials and temptations, and who in His body suffered, suffered for our sake. Pity the Old Testament saints for a moment. They had not yet received such and one as our Lord Jesus. Oh, He was promised. And His priesthood had already been established, if you will, and yet He was not in a body, was He, in which to exercise that priesthood. And He had not yet, though He was a priest forever, yet He had not yet been perfected through sufferings. Remember in Hebrews 2, it says that it was necessary that Christ should be perfected by the sufferings that He bore to be our Savior. So in the Old Testament, the priesthood of Christ and His humanity and His perfection by sufferings and His ability as a man to succor His people in their temptations and trials and suffering had not yet been perfected. Think of it. God determined that the second person, the Son, must be made fit, perfected to save His people by being made man at the incarnation and by His suffering in His humanity for us. Not only at the cross, but in 
participating as a real human person so that he might be our great high priest. No mere spirit is he, even the spirit of the Son, nor angel would be sufficient. But only the God-man, Christ Jesus, who fully participated in our humanity without sin Himself, but fully acquainted with sin, seeing it drag down poor sinners and bind and enslave and mar us and the pull of it in our flesh and the sin's bondage of our wills. He got an up-close personal inspection of all that, didn't He? in His humanity when He met with His people during His ministry. Only that man Christ is fit to be our high priest unto God. The only one found qualified by God for us to be our sacrifice and to be our priest is our dear Lord Jesus Christ. And He is able to succor His people who are tempted because He Himself suffered that temptation in His own body in this world before the witness of His people. And at the Lord's table, we celebrate the offering that Christ made for our sin. The body that He delivered to be mutilated as a sacrifice. The blood that He poured out giving His life a ransom for many that our sins might be forgiven. The Lord Jesus was so painfully aware of the necessity of such a sacrifice precisely because He had suffered in His humanity during His life and ministry here on earth. Even though God always knew and the Son always knew that such a sacrifice would be necessary. Nevertheless, when Christ went to the cross, He went with this personal experiential knowledge of why it must be so, and of the horrible damage done to His people by their sin, and of the horrible judgment that would await unless He completed His work as the sacrifice and the priest for the sacrifice. The Lord Jesus knows what it means to be us poor sinners. Not because He sinned, but because He was judged for our sin. And He knows the temptations and the trials and the struggles, not because He succumbed to them, but because He was subject to them in His flesh. And therefore, He is made a perfect high priest to God to make reconciliation for the people and to succor His people to support to uphold, to encourage, to rescue His people from the temptations, trials, and sufferings which we go through. And of course, the ultimate rescue which Christ has in mind is that great resurrection when He raises up His people unto perfect lives and perfect bodies like unto His glorious body. And when He wipes away all the tears from her eyes for the last time. And when sorrow and sighing flee away, and we're brought into that eternal heavenly glory, eternal life 
that can never fail and never fade. And all of our joy and rejoicing that is to come is all based upon the sacrifice that Jesus made and upon His high priestly work on our behalf. And we must take comfort in it and recall what Jesus went through and understand that He is the one. He is really the only one who can encourage us and rescue us and deliver us and pray for us before God. We know that in the end, all of Christ's work will be accomplished. There will not a one of His people fall to the ground or be lost. He restores all of His people. He leads many sons unto glory. Well, let's give thanks for the Lord's table and thank the Lord Jesus for giving us this celebration. Part of His humanity is to understand the failure of people to remember to celebrate the things of God. And so that's why He ordained, or one of the reasons He ordained this feast, to sustain us in our frailty, in our humanity, until that day when we see all these things with our eyes forever for all eternity. So let's give thanks for the bread that pictures the body of Christ broken for us. O God, our Father, we rejoice that You delivered up Your Son in whom You're well pleased, incarnate in human flesh, that He might have a body with which to be sacrificed in the place of His people, that He might be Your Lamb made like Your sheep which had gone astray, but not going astray Himself, only dying like one, But we thank You that He suffered all of these troubles and tribulations and temptations in His humanity so that He might understand His people's travail and trouble and that He might understand in His humanity what it is that we confront and that He might be a faithful high priest to represent that offering before God to prove its satisfaction utterly on our behalf and to encourage and support and sympathize with His people until that glorious day when He makes all things new and when all things are set right finally and forever. But we thank You that He left us this bread to remind us, help it to do the work that Christ intended. It would truly call to our minds what it was Jesus did for us and His great love that He showed for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us that the Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, took the bread and blessed it and broke it and said, Take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Let's give thanks for the cup. I'd like to ask Brother Witten if he'd give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed to make atonement for us. The Scriptures tell us on the night He was betrayed after they supped, He took the cup and He blessed it. And He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in My blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of Me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing.
number 169 in the black book. Lord, we would ne'er forget Thy love who hast redeemed us by Thy blood. And now as our high priest above, dost intercede for us with God. Number 169.